thanks for having me. It's great to be back in uh, Karlsruhe. Uh, many an hour was spent sitting where you're sitting now, uh, working on my aerodynamic skills with those little bits of paper that they handed as you walk in the door, or figuring out, figuring out the ballistic properties of uh, spit and paper, <laughs> or figuring out my next, uh, my next assault on the, the science lecturer who would be claiming too much for science. I'm, I'm passionate about science. I love science. But it annoys me when people claim too much for science. I'm passionate about Jesus. You might have figured that out too from the title. But it also annoys me when people claim too much for him as well. Uh, if I, I'm going to show you a picture now. This is my, my son, Ben. Can you see that or do I need to adjust the lights? Lights. Okay. No? Yes. Is that better? Okay, this is my son Ben. If I tell you that uh, he's, he's good at just about anything that he puts his uh, hand to, you can see there, he's a remarkable fisherman. Uh, just about anything he puts his hand to, he is fantastic at. Now if I tell you that and then a couple of days time you meet him and you say, hey Ben, let's kick the ball around, and you actually discover that Ben, uh, like his father, isn't all that there is to be with regard to sporting prowess, and your, your information that I've given you about Ben would be slightly distorted then, wouldn't it? You'd be thinking, I wonder whether Andrew was just, you know, claiming too much for his son. I wonder what else doesn't quite fit with that, uh, that image of Ben being the fantastic kid, just about good at anything that he puts his man, mind to. I wonder what else isn't quite right. Uh, it's interesting that uh, 80% of Australian males think that they are above average when it comes to sport. <laughs> anyway. Sometimes, as I've said, science claims too much for itself. Sometimes Christianity, or some forms of Christianity, claim too much for itself. And I want to investigate the relationship between science and Christianity, and particularly uh, what future does Jesus have in this, uh, this scientific world of ours uh, this afternoon. So let's start with science. As I said, I love science. Uh, I love uh, the way that, uh, you know, it, it does so much for me personally and us as a society. Science is very impressive. I, I gather that uh, by you being here in this particular uh, public meeting of EU, that you, you may be on board with that, but just in case there are a few recalcitrant drama students or something like that who aren't convinced yet that science is very impressive, uh, just, just think about it. Just think about how much science has done for us. The seats that you're sitting on, the clothes that you're wearing, uh, the technology in your bag, uh, the pills that you take to cure you from disease or stop you from having an unwanted child, uh, even the bacteria that we know about that causes all sorts of horrible diseases like this flesh-eating bacteria, and the mould that we know about that will cure us from horrible diseases from such bacteria. Science is responsible for us knowing enough about the world that we live in to be able to manipulate the world that we live in in such a way that we can deal with and create these amazing things. These amazing things. Science, every day of our lives, smooths out the bumps that we would otherwise have in our lives. Uh, the scientific endeavour expands our understanding of the world uh, from the tiniest bacteria to the most amazing uh, colossus of an animal. Uh, it, it enlightens our minds and enlarges our imaginations. Ta science tells us about the place that we live. 
It helps us to understand the mountains and the glaciers and the rivers. It helps us to understand how to harness the power of those rivers and create electricity and all of that brings to us. Science tells us how much potential we have as human beings in one way, but it also tells us how puny we are as human beings. Uh, to quote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Earth is an unregarded little blue-green planet far out on the uncharted backwaters of an, of an unfashionable end of a western spiral arm of the galaxy. We are a little speck of dust floating around this little burst of gas in an insignificant spiral galaxy, one, one star amongst something like 10,000 million, million, million stars that exist in the universe. We are fairly insignificant, really, really, when you think about it. And science tells us that. Science tells us why it is that I've got blue eyes just like my dad and Ben, my son's got blue eyes as well, and why my grandfather had blue eyes. We understand those sort of things about us. Science, seemingly, as we look at the world and where we are in history at the moment, it seems to be unstoppable with regard to telling us about who we are and the world that we live in and, and, and resourcing us to move forward in this world as human beings and with all that we have on offer for us as human beings. And at one level, this unstoppability of science has led some to believe that there's a conflict between science and religion, between science in particular and Christianity. Because as science expands its knowledge, as we get, as we get to understand more and more and more, there are some who, who think that by expanding scientific knowledge, you're sort of decreasing the space for God in all of that. And eventually we won't need this antiquated concept of God. We'll understand everything there is to know about the world, about the universe, about ourselves, and science will be as it should be, the only source of true knowledge. Well, I want to challenge you this afternoon to be good scientists. If you're not a scientist, then you have to <coughs> pretend to be a good scientist. But if you're a scientist or you you want to be a scientist, I want to challenge you to be a good scientist. And what that means is paying close attention to the data that's available to us and particularly close attention to the anomalies that we find, the things that don't quite fit, that don't quite fit. Uh, Stephen Hawking's in, I think it was 1986, uh, Stephen Hawking that is, not Hawking's, Hawking, uh, published his A Brief History of Time, in which he pulls together all of the, the collection of data that's arising in the mid-80s and still has been worked on since then, to try and find this unified theory of everything, a simple way of describing the world that we live in in such a way that we could sort of explain everything in this simple theory. People are still uh, looking for this unified theory of everything. And he, he concludes his book, uh, there it is, Brief History of Time, or one, one version of it, he concludes his book, or near the end of his book, with this statement. If we discover a complete theory it should in time be understandable by everyone, not just by a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, science, and just ordinary people, like you and I, I count myself as an ordinary person now, I haven't been doing science for, oh, that's a long time, 10 years. Uh, but ordinary people will be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exists. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we should know the mind of God. What he's claiming 
and he's been claiming throughout this book, is that we don't need this God concept. As we unpack the universe, as we understand the universe in its simplest kind of forms, in its, in its pure mathematical formulas, we, we will understand if there is a God, and he doesn't believe there is, we will understand the mind of God. By understanding the world that we live in, by science understanding the world that we live in, we, 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 we abandon, we don't need anymore this God concept. Well, what is the power of science? We've talked a lot about the things that it does for us, but what, what actually is the power of science? What can it do for us? Well, the power of science comes in being able to make accurate predictions. Being able to make accurate predictions. If you can make an accurate prediction, it means that you can manipulate things, you can change things, you can expect things. And so science basically goes something like this. You do an experiment and you graph the experiment. You have a point there, a point there, and a point there. Seems to be a trend, doesn't there? Seems to be a trend. Could you draw a line through those three points? Well, pretty much so. You could draw a line. I, didn't, I just did this freehand, so it, it probably roughly. And from that line, you could predict. You could predict something about this experiment. And you might say, well, if we do it and we, we have a value of x of a certain amount, then we can predict the value of y. And so you predict and you do the experiment. Hey, presto, there it is. You've managed to figure out what's going to happen beforehand, if you like. You've made a prediction and it's come true. This is the power of science. This is the power of science. This is how science has been able to do so much for us in the power of that prediction. Think about it. Now, with this sort of information, with correct experiments and with those sort of things, we can now, for instance, figure out that there's a relationship between altitude and the boiling point of water, which there is. And so you now, if you want to figure out what, 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 uh, what temperature water would boil at on the top of Mount Everest, you don't actually need to climb to the top of Mount Everest. You can figure it out by doing something like this. You can figure out, for instance, by doing some experiments that as you make water more salty, it freezes at different temperatures. And so, you know, you, could, you don't need to uh, find the most, most uh, salty bit of uh, sea in the, uh, on, on the planet, the Dead Sea or something like that, and transfer it over to the Antarctic to see whether it freezes like any ordinary water. No, you can make predictions. This is the power of science, that we can now turn our thinking into something that we can use into, into the future. But even in saying this, there are, a few kind of, there are a few ground rules that science operates under, a few assumptions or presumptions that science operates under. And one of those is that the world that we live in is an orderly world, that this, this place that we live in has some sort of order to it. That's why you can make predictions, because if X and Y and Z, then something will happen. There's an order to things. Secondly, that the world can be explained in its own terms. There's no need in those sort of predictions that science makes to invoke some non-natural explanation. This is, this is a real key thing for science. There's no need for saying, oh, we don't understand, it must be God. Methodologically, as science undertakes its method to find things out and to make these predictions, science always methodologically acts in a naturalistic way in a way that looks to the natural world for an explanation. It doesn't look to the supernatural world. It shouldn't look to the supernatural world. That, that wouldn't be science, that would be something else. So methodologically, science is naturalistic and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. And, and the, 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 the fathers and occasional mothers of science, many of them were Christian people. 
And they too would operate in this naturalistic methodology. Just because they were Christian didn't mean that they necessarily had to invoke God to explain the things. No, they would say, we don't need to invoke God. The world can be explained on its own terms. And one of the reasons for that is that it is an ordinary world. Now, there's a famous, uh, there's a famous incident in the 18th century, I think it was, with Napoleon Bonaparte and a scientist called Laplace. Now, Bonaparte wanted to find out about this, this new theory about the way the planets went around, around the sun and, and how they all came together. And, and this guy, Newton, and and his laws of gravity and stuff and how that all worked. Anyway, Laplace came in and he, he showed him very eloquently with speech and a little model uh, how this all worked and, and explained it in very naturalistic ways. He didn't invoke God at all. And Bonaparte said at one, one point after he'd had this explanation, uh, Mr. Laplace, where is God in all of this? And Laplace famously quoted I have no need for that hypothesis. Now, I don't think Laplace was actually an atheist, but what he was saying that as a scientist, as a person who's engaging in scientific endeavour, things need to be explained in the terms of the world that we live in. To be a true scientist, you don't have to invoke other things. Now, I, I actually think that is a good thing for scientists to do. Otherwise, we wouldn't have progressed forward. But what has happened over time is that methodology has been transformed, in, transferred into an ideology, transformed, transformed into a way of thinking about the world itself. You see, science, in a sense, with this new ideology, which is called scientism, says that there is nothing else apart from the natural world. There is only matter and energy. There is nothing else. There is no supernatural. There's no spirit world, there's no demons, there's no angels, there's no God. There is nothing else. Because the only thing that science can actually look at is the natural world, is the matter, the energy, the things we can touch and poke and prod and, and kick and whatever you do in your scientific experiment. That is all that science can relate to. And so they say that is all there is. Now, can you see that already there's a bit of a tension there? If you set up a system that limits itself to only looking at a particular thing and then to say that is the only thing there is, how there's kind of a, a logical fallacy in that, that statement. So science, in the end, to agree with scientism has to take a step of faith. Has to take a step of faith. Now you see this in the way that um, science is popularised these days. There's all these great shows like Walking with Dinosaurs, great shows where where science seems to have conquered all from a minute tooth of Tyrannosaurus rex. Now you have the whole life history. Not, not as quite that bad. I'm, I'm being a bit over the top there. But, you know, they had this, this amazing life history of dinosaurs from, from very little um, information. And so, so much to the point that the questions that are raised in the popularisation of science, and particularly down this scientism line, have taken over the questions that were traditionally thought to be religious questions. Why are we here? Where did we come from? These kind of questions, which were traditionally questions of theology rather than science, not that they have to be exclusively that, uh, have been taken over by, by the popularists of science and scientism. Now, I wonder whether you can see a discrepancy in this slide. 
You see, at one, one level, although these beasts on the beach, and this is from the other show, Walking with Beasts, not Walking with Dinosaurs, although you might think, yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that it could be like that, well, why not have Shrek and the donkey as there as well? Why not? I'll leave you with, to ponder that slide. <laughs> That'll do, donkey. Scientism says that the only thing that exists is matter and energy. The only thing that exists is matter and energy. And many scientists have got on the bandwagon. So much so that uh, this scientist, who we all, as scientists, we all love, he's one of the greatest figures of the science in the last century. That's Albert Einstein in his saner moment. He said this, serious scientific workers are the only profoundly religious people. It was an article of the, in the New York Times where he was quoted to say this, serious scientific workers are the only profoundly religious people. This was the start of thinking that the questions of religion really belong in the field of science. And, and, and science is the only way of accessing the true knowledge that we have about the universe that we live in. Okay, so here's the claim that science makes of itself. Well, some science makes of itself. The scientific method is the only reliable means of obtaining knowledge of the world. This is the claim of scientism. Scientific method, observing repeatable experiments, are the, is the only reliable means of obtaining knowledge about the world. Now, I want to suggest that there are some problems with this. And you may be wondering, in this lecture that's all about Jesus, how we've got halfway through and I haven't even talked about him yet. Well, we will come to him. Because as we think about the problems of this statement, we will see that there is a, a grand future for those who are interested in truth without, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what, 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 is, what is wrong with this? Well, there's no way of testing that statement scientifically. This statement is, it, it, it refutes itself because there is no way of testing it scientifically. How can you test that the only knowledge that there is to have is knowledge that comes from science, the scientific endeavour. You can't do it because science limits itself to a particular field, rightly so, and so how do you know there's not knowledge to be had out, outside of that field, outside of the realm of matter and energy, outside of the material world? Science cannot tell you that. Science can neither prove nor disprove that knowledge exists outside of its sphere of reference. So in the end, to believe a statement like that is a blind faith, is accepting something without good evidence. Also, there's another problem with it, and it's a problem which is a bit more subjective, it's a bit more experiential. It seems to contradict our normal experience of life, our normal experience of knowledge. There's a whole lot of ways that we accept knowledge that, aren't sci that isn't scientific. There's a whole lot of things, day by day, moment by moment, that you go through life acting on knowledge that you have that hasn't come to you from scientific evidence, if you like. And you take it as being reliable, but you don't, you don't, it's not scientific. So this statement seems to, at one level, also uh, fly in the face of the way that we live our lives. And I'm not just talking about religious people at that point. I'm talking about all people. There's all sorts of knowledge that all sorts of people uh, rely on and go through life with that, uh, that doesn't rely on the scientific method. So the question for us then, is, this, is there the other forms of knowledge? And if we want to find out about God, but science cannot tell us about God, 
How are we going to cross the divide as people stuck in this material world between the material world and the spiritual realm, if there is one? How are we going to investigate that spiritual world when the resources that we have before us, particularly in science, don't allow us to access that world? How will we cross that divide? Before I answer that question, I want to uh, think about the objectiveness of science because often this is the big claim. When you're thinking about religion and science, that science is objective and, and religion is faith and subjective and it's a bit wishy-washy. But I want to think about that for a little while and then, then answer that question I just posed. How will we cross into knowing about the spiritual world? See, this is the claim. Science is objective and, and a rational endeavour. It's a, it's a thinking endeavour. You switch your brain on, you engage in science and you, you gain knowledge, an objective knowledge. And so it goes something like this. You, you make a prediction. Adding factor X will turn the liquid green. You do the experiment. You perform the experiment, you add factor X and it does turn green. And so you've made this great new discovery. It's all very objective, it's all very clinical, you can repeat it again and again and again just to check that it wasn't a mistake the first time, that factor X was contaminated with factor Y or whatever. You do the appropriate controls and tests and things and it's very objective, isn't it? It's all very objective. But friends, science is so much more interesting and intricate than that. Most experiments, even within the more what would be called the pure sciences, aren't like that. There's a fine line between objectivity and interpretation. Does this this uh, picture uh, is a what's called a, a bubble chamber? I'm not a I'm not a big sort of particle physics expert. I'm interested, but that's about where it stops. But in this chamber uh, is liquid hydrogen, which is at the point of boiling, if you like. It's ready to change from a liquid into a gas. It's kind of supercharged and ready to jump out and become a gas. Okay. And in these experiments, what they, they're trying to figure out the nature of, the nature of uh, atoms, the nature of uh, you know, the, the basic building blocks of life and, and the universe, and whether or not they're subatomic particles. So what they do is they get this bubble chamber filled with this hydrogen that's just, around, just about to explode and become a gas, not explode as in boom, but explode as in release itself into gaseous form. And they, they, they shoot into this bubble chamber a, a, a neutral particle called a neutrino. As that represented there by the N, there it is. And as it, as it comes into contact with a hydrogen atom, as it collides with a hydrogen atom, it does something to the hydrogen atom and it releases the hydrogen atom from its state and, and it pushes it out of the way, like it collides and as a billiard ball would, it pushes the hydrogen atom off in a particular directory. But as it releases these electrons from the hydrogen atom, it, it, the hydrogen becomes gas. And so throughout this bubble chamber, you see these little trails of bubbles where this reaction is, is happening. A bit like a beer glass, when you see the sort of bubbles rising in the beer glass. A bit like that. Apparently the guy who invented it came to this brainwave as he was having lunch. Um, <laughs> anyway, as you look at that, what, what do you see? What do you see? I just see um, maybe a kind of a an artistic impression of, you know, I don't know. What do you see when you look at that? It's just squirrels and squiggles and lines and it doesn't really mean a lot to me even though I've done a bit of reading about it. Does it mean, it, does it mean anything to anybody in this room apart from what I've just said? Is anyone a physicist? Okay, does it mean anything to you guys? A little bit. 
Okay, so in a room of how many, how many people, say 100 or so people, there's three people that means a little bit to. <laughs> now, does that mean that there's nothing going on here that we can't learn from? Absolutely not. This, these sort of experiments have unpacked some of the most profound mysteries about the, about the nature of atoms. But as you look at this, you've got to actually interpret what's going on. It's not clear to us exactly what's going on. You've got to actually interpret it. You've got to come to this experiment not as a blank slate, but as someone who has all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of knowledge that you need to apply to this thing to be able to move forward. You see, the thing that makes this understandable for us is that there's a subject involved, the person who's doing the subjective element of looking at it. A person who is subjectively saying, I know what's going on here. I know what's important and not important. I know, for instance, that this line going down here is probably due to cosmic radiation. It's got nothing to do with the experiment. It's just things floating down from space. Well, I would never have known that. I know, for instance, that as I, this is the important thing. And these trails that go out this way and this curve up here, that is the most significant thing on that diagram. Now, how you would know that unless you had background information, I don't know. See, science is not all as objective as it claims to be. Every single scientific experiment, the subject comes with knowledge, with experience, and they apply that to the experiment. Now, that is not wrong. And so as we come to think uh, just in the final couple of minutes about, uh, about another, another way of looking at the world, then don't too quickly go and say, oh, yeah, faith and religion is just subjective. What's good for you? That's, you know, that's fine, but doesn't really affect me. No. Suspend that because I hope just in this little example, and you might want to think about it a bit more, science is not all that objective either. It is objective, but not completely <coughs> objective. So the question is, how will we bridge this gap between our limited ability to look at the world that we live in and, and, and try and figure out whether there is anything out there, where there is a God where there is a spiritual world, whether that God, if there is a God, has anything to do with us. Well, people have thought about this for centuries. That's what religions are all about, really, isn't it? And the distinctive between Christianity and other religions is that other religions, in the main, in the main, have people pondering the things out there, have people sitting from within this perspective that we are limited to and pondering the spiritual. From our limited perspective, will we ever be able to ponder the spiritual to the nth degree? I want to suggest to you, no. What we need is we need the spiritual to come to us. We need somehow, if there is a God out there, for that God to come to us, to interact with us in a way that we can then know that God. And that's exactly what happens 2,000 years ago when this man, Jesus Christ, steps onto the pages of history. When Jesus Christ steps onto the pages of history, God comes to us. Now, how do we know that this is reliable information? How do we know that the things that Jesus says about himself is worthy of us counting as knowledge? How do we, how do we know that, that, um, that God exists and how do we know that, uh, that Jesus is a way of, of telling us about that God? I'm going to skip over those things just quickly. We thought about knowledge in terms of scientific knowledge and said that it's limited to the world around us. And we also suggested to you that there's other sorts of knowledge. Well, 
let's think about those other sorts of knowledge because they will help us understand Jesus and his future in this scientific world. There's historical knowledge, for instance. Now, this isn't scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge is based on repeatable events, repeatable experiments. uh, Historical knowledge, by its very nature, looks at one-off events. How do you know that Neil Armstrong was the first person to step step foot on the moon? Well, maybe it was a conspiracy, but just... (laughs) And they lost those tapes, so who knows what's going on there. But anyway, how do you know that Neil Armstrong was the first person to step foot on the moon? You can't do an experiment to prove that fact. You can't sort of set it all up and repeat it so the first thing, the first time that anyone set foot on the moon was again happened as Neil Armstrong too set foot on the moon. You can't do that. That's the nature of history. That make, that's what makes it history and not science. And yet, we still look at historical data and we say there is knowledge to be had there and there is reliability to have, have there. Once, once historians have done their work and their careful work of figuring out what is history and what isn't history, we can have a confidence that there is a a sense, a reliability about the information they give to us. There's all sorts of ways that historians will do that. And so the question for us about Jesus will rely on this sort of data as well. Is the things that we hear and see about Jesus as recorded in the Bibles and and by other historians, are they reliable historical facts? The other, the other thing to, to, which we'll come back to is, is personal knowledge. There's all sorts of things that you, you, you know in your life that you take, that you take as, as part of your life, as part of what's going on. You know that the, your friend who you're sitting next to you is your friend. Why? Have you done experiments? Well, maybe you have. <laughs> have you done experiments to figure out that your friend is your friend? My, my lovely wife is sitting over there. How do I know that she loves me? How do I know that? Have I done experiments? Well, actually, yes, I have. (laughs) I try all the time to give her opportunities to, but anyway. How do I know that she loves me? All sorts of knowledge comes to us, and without these both historical and even particularly personal knowledge, the world would be a very bland place. If it was just down to knowing things by scientific endeavour, that magnificent piece of music would just be a, a, a couple of vibrations within the air. That magnificent masterpiece would just be a collection of different hues of certain chemical compositions on a, on a media. How do we know that there's right and wrong? How do we know that it's not right to kill another person? How do we know that torturing other people is not right? How do we know these things that we take for granted in terms of morals and ethics, how do we know they're right or wrong? How do we gain that knowledge? Well, it's probably not through science. And so Jesus steps onto the pages of history and he makes claims about himself. And a historical event happens as he dies and as he is resurrected from the dead. A thing that we know just can't happen scientifically. We know it doesn't happen. We know people don't rise from the dead. Science can can very clearly show us. Well, actually, it can't very clearly show us. It can show us that in the main, on average, people don't rise from the dead. But it can't say that one man 2,000 years ago did not rise from the dead. And yet history tells us, and not just Christian history, but a broader history tells us that Jesus did rise from the dead. What does that do for us? Living in a world where a man who claimed that he's come from God has risen from the dead. 
Just to finish, I want to read to you what Jesus said to his disciples just before he was about to go and die on that cross. They were a bit troubled that he was going to be going away. They'd spent three years with him. And he says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, that was one of Jesus' disciples, one of those who had been with him for about three years, said to him, Lord, Lord we don't know where you're going. In fact, Lord, this is all rather strange and just crazy. What are you doing talking about going? How can you be thinking that? Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father also. From now on, you do not know him. You do know him and have seen him. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What Jesus is claiming here is that he is the link between the material world that we're stuck in, that our rational minds are stuck in, and the spiritual world where God does exist. Jesus is saying, you want to know God the Father? Look at me. And then a couple of days later, he rises from the dead. And if anything in all of the world history is going to convince you that there might be something else going on, then what's here and now? Surely a resurrection from the dead has got to be that sort of thing. Many people say, if there is a God, why is he so hard to find? Why is he so hard to find? Uh, my youngest son, not Ben, my youngest son is Timothy. He's five years old. He's not so much into this now, but when he was about two and a half years old, he loved hide and seek. But he felt necessary to explain the rules to me every time. It's always good when you're playing with young children or young men on a Saturday afternoon touch footy game to get the rules clear before you start. That way there's no sort of disagreement as you go along. Now he'd say to me, Dad, let's play hide and seek. Oh, okay, Tim, how do we play hide and seek? Well, it's like this, Dad. You cover your eyes and count to ten. I run off and hide behind the kitchen door. <laughs> then you come and find me. Look, Dad, it's not that hard. It's a pretty simple game. Okay, Tim, let me see if I got this right. I cover my eyes, I count to ten, you run off and hide behind the kitchen door, and I come and find you. Yes, Dad, that's right. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, coming, ready or not, here I come. Okay, is Tim under the dining room table? No, he's not there, and a little giggle from behind the kitchen door. <laughs> is, Tim, is Tim behind the fridge? No, he's not there, and a, a sort of a more sort of belly laugh behind the kitchen door. Is Tim... Out in the backyard. No, and the kitchen door starts to shake uncontrollably. <laughs> Is Tim behind the kitchen door? Boom, out he pops. Yes, here I am. You see, the point of the game was not that he would hide. The point of the game is that I found him. And he wanted to be found, didn't he? That's why he explained the rules to me. <laughs> God is not in the game of hiding from us. He wants to be found. He wants to be found. So much so that he sent his only son from that spiritual realm that we have no access to, to this physical realm that we might know him and have a personal relationship with him. God wants you to find him. Now, if you are a good scientist, 
this anomaly of this one, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God himself, who rose from the dead, should have an impact on your life right here and now. If you are a good scientist, you won't let that slip by and just say, oh, well, that doesn't really matter. It's all, all a bit sort of crazy, all a bit sort of spooky. And those Christians there, well, yeah, you know. No. You'll take that anomaly and you'll investigate it. You'll read some of the historical accounts about Jesus' life. They're called the Gospels. You'll read some of those things. You'll speak to a Christian friend about it and ask them why it is that they believe what they believe. And you'll do some thorough investigation. You know, the most prominent way that science has moved forward throughout the centuries has been that, that courageous individuals have seen something that's not quite right and they've stepped out of the comfort zone, stepped out of what was the, the, the norms of the day and said, no, 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 I don't believe it's like that. I believe that it, there must be something else going on here. When uh, Uranus was found, uh, I think it's in the 17th century, it was noticed that it didn't quite fit with the regulatory order, uh, or, uh, the regular sort of orbitary pattern orbits of the planets around, around the sun. It didn't quite fit with what would be expected if Newton's laws were really in play. And, and those laws, they were, they were things of beauty. And everything else seemed to fit, but Uranus didn't quite fit. Now, what are you to do with that thing that doesn't quite fit? Well, the, the astronomers didn't seem to do much, but two mathematicians, one in France and one in England, the guy in England, I think his name was Adams, and the guy in France's name was Leveria or something like that. Anyway, they worked it out. They looked at the orbit and they, they figured it out. They said, both of them independently said, there must be another planet further out that's somehow affecting, its gravity is affecting the orbit of Uranus. And, there, and, and, and after a while they looked and sure enough, they found Neptune. What do you do with the anomaly? Do you just say, oh, well, you know, it, uh, it doesn't really matter? Friends, I believe in subatomic particles. I don't really understand quarks and gluons and all those sort of things, but, you know, I believe in them. But you know what? They don't really have a big impact on my life. But I believe there is a God, and He wants to be found, and He sent His Son to die and rise that I might have a relationship with him. And that has a profound impact on my life. Will you be a good scientist and investigate Jesus as thoroughly as you can? Thanks.